Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the upcoming G20 summit in India and Germany's economic growing pains. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, Ethan. Um, now, before we get into today's podcast, I have uh, something to ask you about. I spot on your Twitter uh, that on Wednesday night, it must have been, you ran into someone, uh, well, famous in our in our circles anyway. <laughs> Very famous in our circles, which is uh, it says more about us than anything else. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I ran into, I had, a, I had a, a quintessential DC moment. I was at a Chipotle in downtown DC. And lo and behold, the the United States Transportation Secretary walked in, Pete Buttigieg. He ran for president in 2020. Uh, our American listeners will, will certainly know who he is. Really nice guy. I mean, I, I was actually, I, I talked to the uh, Chipotle employees after I said, they were asking me who he was. I was explaining that he was a former presidential candidate. And I said, what did he order? Uh, and they printed out his ticket, his order ticket, and handed it to me. Uh, so I feel like that's some sort of violation of state secrets there. HIPAA, at the very least, yeah. But <laughs> here, I'll, I'll read it, um, and let's see. Let's well, let me let me get your take here. It's a bowl with white rice, fajitas, pinto beans, chicken, medium green salsa, cheese, and lettuce. What do you what do you make of that? I, I mean, just about perfect. I'd swap the white rice for brown rice, but that's about it. Oh, that's I'm I'm sorry to hear that. I, I completely disagree. I'm a sour cream guy through and through. If it doesn't have sour cream, I'm not interested. But the funny thing is, I tweeted that it, I, I didn't <laughs> like the secretary's order, and my mentions were just flooded with Buttigieg fans who were telling me how how perfect the order is, how he's running a half triathlon, and that's why you know you know he kept it light without any sour cream. So. It will be a topic of discussion yeah. for the rest of time. Chipotle orders of um, middle-ranking and fairly obscure cabinet secretaries. It's it's the kind of content we <laughs> exactly. we live to bring you. But anyway, with, with that digression out of the way, Ethan, what's what's on the agenda today? Let's get to something even more exciting. Uh, so, <laughs> it's John, impossible. you previewed this on on the last show, but we are in the absolute middle of summit season. We had the ASEAN conference this past week. We've got the UN General Assembly later this month, which. Well, yet wait for the ad wait for the ad and in between those we've got the g20 which is taking place this weekend before we get into predictions for the g20 just any reflections from the asean summit this week yeah um can keep this brief i think well, asean to step back a second is the association of southeast asian nations um 10 members uh, and they met in jakarta uh, this past week we wrote about it in the newsletter, Ethan, um, but it seems like, well, we feel like they're going through a little bit of an identity crisis, kind of trying to figure out what their role is in this kind of new, in this new world. Um, and they're kind of struggling to address uh, some of the bigger issues that are coming across their table. Um, you know, they've been pushing a peace plan in Myanmar, in Myanmar for quite a while. Obviously, Myanmar's had been run by a military junta for, for a few years now, um, but it doesn't seem to be working. They've been trying to inflict some sort of political punishment on the hunter, but, you know, to little effect so far. Um, and I think some experts would say that they've not been effective enough in pushing back against uh, China's fairly broad claims in the South China Sea, which is, of course, um, a lot of countries in ASEAN claim that those areas as their territorial waters as well. Um, 
So per perhaps taking firm stances isn't necessarily in ASEAN's DNA. Of course, we know that ASEAN has, for, for most of its existence, been governed by these principles of non-interference in members' internal affairs. It's much more consultative than kind of, you know, decision-making, as it were. Prescriptive. Um, yeah, right. exactly. Um, generally, non-alignment in global affairs is their, is their MO. Um, but I think the most telling kind of temperature check on where ASEAN is is that um, neither President Biden or President Xi showed up at the summit in Jakarta. Now, there's probably tons of reasons, individual reasons why they didn't show up, but it doesn't look great that the leaders of the two countries that I think are probably most likely to have conflict in Asia, in ASEAN's backyard, um, they decided it's not worth their time to show up at the ASEAN summit to talk about these issues. So it's not great from their perspective. Thanks for that, John. Well, if you want to learn more, check out the newsletter. Well, so let's turn to the G20 summit this upcoming weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be returning to the theme of absenteeism later on, but let's start by talking about the host. Well, actually, let's start a bit broader even. Should we just like kind of run back on what the G20 is? Because I think it can be a bit oh, yeah. confusing <laughs> in summit season to keep track of them all. Yeah, I guess that would be a good place to start, but let's uh, keep it quick. Keep it keep, quick. Keep it quick. All right. Um, so... G20, group of 20, collection of the 20 largest economies in the world. The EU is also a member, which kind of makes it confusing because it's not a country. Um, but Germany, Italy, and France are all members as well. So yeah, a little bit a little bit mixed. Um, obviously a very important group. 85% uh, of global GDP is represented by the countries in the G20, 75% of global trade, and around two-thirds of the global population. Um, you know, it's kind of primary job is to manage and foster cooperation, manage disputes, generally kind of keep the the wheels of, of the global economy well greased. Um, and I think that's kind of what makes the G20 important and weak at the same time. Um, these economies represent most of the world, but that means they're not necessarily ideologically aligned, right? I mean, you've got the US, but on the other hand, you've got Russia, India, China. So it's not so much about consensus building or getting big things done it's more about providing a forum to keep a keep a lid and lid on things and, and and prevent a crisis i'd say okay so let's now talk about the host yes let's um g20 doesn't have an official kind of permanent headquarters it's summits are kind of hosted on a rotational basis between the members and this year it's india's turn to host um and they're hosting in new delhi uh, you know, we've talked and written pretty extensively in, in intrigue about how India is kind of growing up or coming coming into its own on the, on the global stage right now. You know, it's the most populous country in the world um, as of pretty recently. Its manufacturing sector is growing pretty quickly as well. Um, and I have, well, I really see it as kind of a pole of emerging power, one of the few kind of key capitals in the world where I think real geopolitical power will reside over, over the coming years. So against that backdrop, um, India, and especially it's now pretty long-term prime minister, right, uh, Narendra Modi, um, they've been using the G20 to really make a statement about India on the world stage and its global intentions. I mean, there've been plenty of pre-meetings, there always are in G20 years, um, but these these meetings have featured, you know, really big billboards of Prime Minister Modi's face all through New Delhi. Uh, they've apparently they're going to spend a hundred million bucks yeah. on on the summit, um, which is more than India spent getting to yeah. the moon last month. If you if you want some comparison, <laughs> I find that mind blowing. Uh, but you can host a summit or you can go to the moon. The Financial Times wrote something 
saying that India spent less going to the moon than Arsenal spent on Kai Havertz. But <laughs> well, that's a digression Anyways. that we could go into for twenty minutes. But uh, <laughs> look, um, you know, I, I don't. I, I, all of that spending is and and kind of fanfare around the G twenty is probably as much for Indian domestic politics as anything else. Elevating Modi above kind of just a mere Indian politician to sort of the host of the world's most powerful people and pride of all of India, or so he hopes. But um, either way, I think this weekend's going to be quite the spectacle. John, that's all happening outside the convention <laughs> hall. What happens when leaders make their way inside? What's on the agenda this year? Yeah, so India's calling the theme of this year's summit One Earth, One Family, One Future. I just had to check my notes there because it's so banal. Sometimes I forget what it is. Um, the mission statement apparently goes on to describe the theme as, uh, quote, affirming the value of all life, human, animal, plant, and microorganisms and their interconnectedness right. on the planet Earth <laughs> and in the wider universe. So, love it. Yeah, make it that what you will. It's, I mean, it's vague by design, right? Um, the vagueness, I think, is intended to sort of allow some flexibility and room to room to find cooperation on on areas that might not be obvious um you know we've seen some opportunities for countries to work together on things like development finance um at other recent summits um and india wants to push to expand the forum the g20 to to include more countries in the global south so, so that kind of makes sense right um but on the big ticket items the things that maybe our listeners are kind of thinking about um war in ukraine being an obvious one i doubt we'll get anything more than kind of the very general banal statements that abhor violence and, and call for peace and and maybe even i'm even being too optimistic there i'm remembering back in march there was a, a meeting of g20 foreign ministers that was completely dominated by really fierce emotional arguments over the war and it ended out without a, a joint statement at all which is surprising and i'd be surprised if that's how this g20 ends but you never know right um, you know, all of that, of course, is India, which is hosting, has been, if not close to Russia, certainly not sort of certainly not taking sides during the course of the war. So I think they'll probably be pretty keen to keep that issue, talk on that issue to a minimum. Um, you know, I think to sum up, I, I wouldn't expect big headlines to come out of this weekend. I wouldn't expect anything dramatic, but it doesn't mean there won't be meaningful, more substantive kind of agreements on less sexy areas of cooperation. Well, right, but addressing big issues uh, is made all the more difficult when important leaders, big leaders in the G20 are absent, not just President Putin, who is absent for obvious reasons, but also Chinese President Xi. Uh, and that's really confusing to me. What's going on here? Why is she skipping this? Yeah, well, it's certainly because he doesn't have to travel too far, right? Like India and China share a border. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a heck of a lot going on in his decision and, and we don't know, right? No one knows, but a couple of, couple of things stand out to me. Firstly, China and India aren't on great terms. Um, we've discussed that before here, um, but I wouldn't say that's the primary primary reason. You know, he, she would go to the US if the circumstances were right. So I wouldn't say that's the key reason. Um, China's dealing with a rapidly expanding economic crisis right now. Um, so maybe she doesn't want to seem out of touch by leaving the country at, at a delicate time. You know, there was some reporting, I think, in uh, in a Japanese newspaper this weekend about Xi's political position being in uh, being under threat. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's true, and I don't trust that reporting. But 
it's not a secret, I think, that things aren't going as she would like right now. Obviously, we've, we've, we remember the case of the foreign minister who mis- was mysteriously removed, Qin Gang, for reasons that still haven't really been made clear. He's all, uh, Xi Jinping has also removed some senior military leaders recently, for ostensibly for corruption. So all of that adds weight to this idea that things aren't going as he wants back home, and it's probably not the best time for him to leave Beijing right now. Um and then I think another reason is simply that I think she probably doesn't want to face critics, um, particularly in an environment he doesn't control. If I know one thing, Ethan, about dealing with the Chinese government, it's that they will try to control every every last thing of a visit, from you know the volume of the music in the bathroom to the to the thread count on the dish towels in the kitchen. Um, and you know I've got friends and colleagues in India who say uh, that government isn't particularly receptive to those kinds of demands. Um, so it's it's a mix that I think the Chinese will feel pretty uncomfortable that they don't control the situation. And then you know coming off a successful BRICS summit um, in Johannesburg, um, where China is clearly the most dominant member of that, and he does get to kind of control the narrative and look good. Why would she risk turning up into a potentially awkward environment where he has to face difficult questions, um, perhaps from the US or other European countries? Um, the whole thing could make him look small, which is not what he yeah. wants to project. So all downside and and not much of an upside, I think. So barring some you know shocking change of heart, he won't be there. Can can the G20 do important work without him? Well, uh, it doesn't matter that he's not there te- from a technical perspective because, you know, the, the G20 doesn't, as I said, make any binding decisions. Their joint declarations are kind of statements of intent, nothing nothing more than that. Um, but it's kind of what I said about ASEAN before. If, if the G20 wants to try and remain as a premier international gathering for problem solving, it's, it's you know, much better if the Chinese president is, is there and taking part. Um, but again, on the other hand, I'm not sure she thinks that the, the G20 serves China's goals like it like it maybe once did. Um, I think once upon a time, being a part of the club was the goal, but I don't think that's as important anymore as being the central controlling force of the club. Um, and obviously, that's never going to happen in the in the G20 the way it's constructed, um, not with the US and the European countries kind of dominating it. So perhaps his absence is more of a subtle signal that he kind of wants to elevate the BRICS summit to eventually replace the G20 in the future. Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us, International Intrigue. The Intrigue team is heading up to New York City this month to cover the UN General Assembly and will be publishing a daily newsletter featuring all the biggest stories from inside the building. If you love Intrigue and want to know more about how the world's leaders confront the biggest challenges of our time, climate change, free trade, the war in Ukraine, you'll absolutely love this newsletter. Check out the link in the show notes to sign up. All right, welcome back. So you mentioned China's economic troubles a second ago, but John, there's another member of the G20 whose economy has come into the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, and I think it's a pretty surprising one, um, or at least I was surprised by it. Uh, you know, you look down the list of G20 members and you might think we're talking about you know, Argentina or Turkey or, or something like that, but uh, we're actually, this story is about Germany which I think for decades, certainly as long as I've been following this stuff, has been considered kind of the powerhouse of Europe, its strongest economy, right? Um, this is Germany. They are the car. I'm just thinking like car- cars, manufacturing, engineering. Efficiency. Yeah, yeah, right. 
Exactly. Um, and yet it looks like its economy is in a little bit of trouble. Um, I think you only need to think back to the you know, the Greek debt crisis um, and how Germany kind of really held the Eurozone together, propped it up, um, I think is probably a fair way to describe it, to sort of, yeah, to, to, I guess it, what I'm trying to say is it's very surprising to me that they're now in trouble. And, and, you know, a decade and a half later, the IMF is saying that Germany will be the only major economy to contract this year. So, you know, they've come a long way. And even Russians, Russia's sanctioned, strained economy is expected to grow this year for, for context. So, yeah, a surprising one. Wow. Well, John, you, you hinted at it there. But how did Germany end up so wealthy for so long? What was their model? Of success. Well, yeah, yeah, I touched on it just there, right? Like they're an engineering, high value added manufacturing powerhouse, um, an export powerhouse. They export their, their a lot of their stuff to the rest of the world. Um, the model has been to produce things like really high quality cars and ship them to places like China. Um, and consumers around the world have just loved those kind of high value German products. Um, and the growth happened pretty quickly too. Taking China for example, uh, in 20, uh, 20, it was two thousand two. China imported about fourteen billion dollars worth of things from Germany, um, not just cars, you know, across the whole spectrum. But less than a decade later, by twenty eleven, that figure of imports had reached ninety billion. So five times in in a decade, it's pretty pretty good re- uh, pretty good return. Um, and it then continued to grow up to about 113 billion by 2018. But since then, so about five years ago, it's pretty much stagnated and stayed stable since then. Part of the reason is China is producing a lot more of its own stuff, um, a lot more cars for one. Um, and in fact, the largest EV maker in the world is now Chinese, um, BYD. Uh, and also the global trade environment is just a lot less friendly than it was um, a decade ago. You know, the UK was also a big importer of German goods, but those figures have slowed since the B word, Brexit. Um, and obviously trade with uh, Russia isn't where it once was for, again, obvious reasons. So The W the whole, word. <laughs> yeah, the B, exactly. But it, the whole model of German kind of prosperity and economic growth is, is kind of not coming apart, but certainly strained. Does Germany have a contingency plan to address this? Well, not one that's clear and been uh, kind of revealed to the rest of the world yet. Um, you know, Germany has a lot of, pro- like a lot of kind of structural problems. It has one of the oldest labor forces in Europe. Um, it's only got one kind of what we would call like a tech company, a major software company, SAP. And not for nothing, when I worked in government, we used SAP and I hated it. It sap just <laughs> sucks. It's not necessarily relevant, Ethan, but it's good to get it off my chest here anyway. John, John, I forgot to tell you this episode is sponsored by Uh-oh. SAP. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I apologize. Call this is why we should trade notes before we start recording. <laughs> but no, I think I think when you think of dynamic economies in the 21st century, um, you don't necessarily think of Germany. You think of you know young, growing labor markets, um, strong service sector kind of economies. Germany doesn't have either of those things. Um, and plus, I think this is well documented by now. But Germany was relying on old energy partners like Russia, and they just aren't reliable anymore. Um, and rather than make up for short-term short-term shortfalls uh, with things like nuclear energy, they took nuclear energy power plants offline, as we know, um, and they're doubling down on coal. So it seems like there's just a kind of general, and I'm probably being a bit dramatic here, but a Ludditism in the German economy oh. at the moment. <laughs> um and I, and I think I have evidence for my strong take there because uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said almost as much recently when he lamented, and again, quoting here, 
the mildew of bureaucracy, risk aversion, and despondency that has settled on our country over years and decades. That's how he described the German economy, <laughs> which is depressing, po- poetic to be fair, but pretty depressing. And extremely German. But but John, Very how German. bad is this really? I mean, Germany still has a lot going for it. It's still, come on, it's still the fourth largest economy in the world. Is this just a blip on the radar? Yeah, I mean, that's right. You've got to put these things in context, right? It's still got a ton going for it. Uh, I wouldn't recommend betting against the German economy's long-term outlook by any means. Um, still got a ton of that technical expertise I talked about. And of course, a, a, just a ton of political power in Europe and, and around the world. Rock-solid bond markets, for example, which is a you know a good indicator that the rest of the world still believes in Germany and wants to invest and, and store their cash there. So yeah, it's not over by any means. But I think what makes Germany's kind of current moment so interesting is that it shows how much the world is changing right now. You know, a lot of the time we focus on the hotspots and the headline grabbing stuff in geopolitics. And I think we sometimes struggle to explain why that matters beyond those headlines, right? I think this is a great example. We're living in a more geopolitically tense uh, and volatile world than, than even a decade ago. And we're starting to see that reflecting in domestic industries getting stronger at the expense of export-driven industries. Um, And those economies that relied on exporting high-value goods like Germany are seeing their numbers slow, their growth numbers slow. And the destination countries that used to potentially import those things are starting to develop their own capabilities as kind of a hedge against the, the geopolitical tensions. Um, So, you know, I'm betting Germany will be able to adapt over time and figure this out. Um, they're clearly on top of diagnosing the problem, I think. They're having these conversations. Olaf Scholz's comments suggest that they're aware that it's an issue. Um, and you know, if they are able to adapt, I think those solutions that they come up with will be incredibly helpful for other countries that find themselves in similar positions as well. Well, John, our, our, German, leader, our German listeners will correct me, but tschüss. Tschüssies? <laughs> Do you mean tschüss? Goodbye. <laughs> good, good. I don't know. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> And that's going to do it for me. By the way, after India's historic success last month, yet another country is on its way to the moon. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see who it is. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. Tuesday.